Welcome to the Factory Youth Podcast. This is a weekly teaching podcast from the Factory Youth at Calvary Chapel, Vera Beach. The story of the Bible is sort of in three movements, I guess. Um, Creation and commission, we see that in the first few chapters of the Bible. God creates everything and then gives humanity, mankind, a task. Be fruitful and multiply and have dominion. And then there's a rebellion. We talked about a heavenly rebellion and an earthly rebellion um, where, where the relationship between man and God was broken. It was severed because of disobedience and sin. But then that began God's plan for redemption, to bring back what was lost in that beginning story in the Garden of Eden. And then through redemption, we ultimately see a new creation, and then we are commissioned again. And we're sort of smack dab in the redemption process of the story. God bringing back what was lost in Genesis chapter 3. And so we've met God. We've seen that he's a creator, that he desires to be with his creation. Humanity rebelled against God, causing all of God's good creation to fall into destruction and all of the chaos and, and harm and hurt and rebellion that we experience in the world is a result of sin, of disobedience. But God began his plan to redeem back what was lost in the garden. And we've seen that God heals the world by healing individuals. God's primary plan for redemption is through healing individuals. We see that first through Abraham, and then through Moses, and then through Joshua, and then last week with Pete, we talked about David. And all of this is bringing his ultimate plan of redemption into clear focus. We're actually moving towards God's ultimate plan for redemption. And all of these things, both these characters and these sort of processes, are to bring the, the ultimate redeemer into picture, into clear focus. Today, sort of as we move through the story, we're going to look at the temple of the living God. Sort of our title tonight, the temple of the living God. Now this seems a a bit random and abrupt. We're gonna spend our time talking about a building. That's our plan. You're like, awesome. Now, okay, let me, before, because you guys, I feel like I'm already losing you. I'm really excited about tonight. Um, It's very interesting stuff we're gonna talk about. It might be a little too interesting for you. You never thought you'd hear me say that. Um, It might be too interesting. And because it's so interesting, I might lose your attention a little bit. So um, what I'm asking you to do is to pay attention because it's so interesting, all right? Does that make sense? You're like, that doesn't make any sense. No, I'm telling you, if you guys will ride with me through this, you'll be like, that was actually pretty interesting. Um, So we're going to talk about the temple of the living God. This is the place of worship, the place, the location of worship for the people of Israel. And we're going to see that this is actually at the center of the entire plan of God from the beginning. Okay, the temple, which we'll talk about, is actually at the center. Everyone say center center of the entire plan of God from the beginning. Here's the big idea. You can write this down. It's on the stream. God wants to live and dwell among his creation. This is the whole point of the message, right? This is, I'm going to repeat this at the very end. So you could technically listen to this and then zone back in at the end and you've got the whole message. God, I want to say God, God. wants to live and dwell among his creation. This is the heart of the redemption story. This is why in Genesis chapter 3, when man rebels against God, God doesn't just throw in the towel. This is why God doesn't just say, all right, I'll find a new family. 
All right, I'll start over. All right, you guys can just do your own thing. I'm going to create a new planet, a new place, and try again. This is the heart of the story. This is why God has, from Genesis chapter 3, began his redemption process, because God wants to live and dwell with his Creation, And at the center of this for the people of Israel is the temple. And we will see how this is moving us all into personal relationship with God. All right? Second Chronicles chapter 5 is where we're going to be. Second Chronicles chapter 5. Um, I've got a lot of notes on the screen. I have even more notes in the Bible app. So if you have the Bible app um, and you go to the events tab... You click more, then you click events. Um, and then also, we're not going to get into it, but at the very bottom of the, the uh, page, I've got some resources. There's three links on there, okay? Um, one is a video to the Bible Project that uh, explains the temple. It's about five minutes long. It's really interesting. Okay, so if you like YouTube, it's great. The one called Bible Project. Then um, there's a longer message on the tabernacle by a guy named Tyler Staten. That's a really good message. And then finally, at the very end, we'll talk about this. There is a, um, uh, it's by a, a resource called Practicing the Way. That's uh, an invitation to how to discover God's presence in your life. Okay, so those are some resources that are at the end. I'll, re I'll reiterate that at the end as well. All right, 2 Chronicles chapter 5. Is everyone there? If not, it's on the screen. 2 Chronicles 5, verse 1, it says this. So Solomon finished all his work on the temple of the Lord. Then he brought all the gifts his father David had dedicated, the silver, the gold, and the various articles, and he stored them in the treasuries of the temple of God. Now pause. We last week met David, remember? Pete talked about David, his part, how he moves the story along. This is David's son. David had a plan to build the temple, but because he was a man of war, God said, you're not going to build the temple. So David basically collected all the materials needed to build the temple, stored them for his son Solomon to ultimately build the temple. So Solomon here has just finished the temple. He's built it. And then it says this, jump down to verse 7. It says, then the priests carried the ark of the Lord's covenant into the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place, and placed it beneath the wings of the cherubim. The cherubim spread their wings over the ark, forming a canopy over the ark and its carrying poles. These poles were so long that their ends could be seen from the holy place, which is in front of the most holy place, but not from the outside. They are still there to this day. Now, nothing was in the ark except the two stone tablets that Moses had placed in it at Mount Sinai, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they left Egypt. Then the priests left the holy place. All the priests who were present had purified themselves, whether or not they were on duty that day. Then the Levites, who were musicians, Asaph, Haman, Judathan, and all their sons and brothers were dressed in fine linen robes and stood at the east side of the altar playing cymbals, lyres, and harps. They were joined by 120 priests who were playing uh, trumpets. The trumpeteers and singers performed together in unison to praise and give thanks to the Lord, accompanied by the trumpets, cymbals, and other instruments. They raised their voices and praised the Lord with these words, He is good, His faithful love endures forever. And at that moment, a thick cloud filled the temple of the Lord. And the priests could not continue their service because of the cloud, for the glorious presence of the Lord filled the temple. 
Okay, do you understand the scene that's happening? Solomon's just finished the temple. Then the priests following the command given to Moses when he's writing the law in Exodus and Leviticus, they begin to do the work that God commanded, instructed them to do in the temple or the tabernacle. And as they do this, then the presence of God, the, the, the manifestation of God's presence in the cloud descended upon the temple and so thick that the priests couldn't continue their work because the presence of God was so thick in the room. That's the situation that's happening. We're going to break this down. Um, sort of to understand this, I want to tell you a story. A couple of friends of ours, um, they, over the summer last year, they took three months to basically travel all over the world. They did a month and a half in Latin America, and then they did a month and a half in Europe. And they basically were like, summers in Florida are too hot. Let's go travel the world. And so they did it. Um, well, they were in Costa Rica, and uh, they went uh, to the beach, and they left all of their stuff in the back of their car. They didn't think anything of it. And then they came back, and everything in their car was stolen. Um, they had their computers. They had their clothes. Um, and most importantly, they had their passports. Everything gone. Well, luckily, the thief was nice and left one of their phones there. They're like, they're probably going to need to get around, but we'll take everything else. So everything was gone, passport included. They had one phone, and they're like, well, <laughs> we're stuck. What are we going to do? And so they found that about six hours away was a United States embassy, which basically, the embassy operates essentially as the United States in another country. So you can go there in an emergency, and what you'll find in the embassy is you'll find um, U.S. citizens. You'll find uh, Americans working. You'll find American art. You'll find the American flag. And you can even find yourself an American passport. It's expensive. Very expensive, and it's a whole process, but you can. Essentially, what happens is the U.S. Embassy operates as America. And when you step into the embassy, uh, you are essentially stepping onto American soil. Not technically, but essentially. You're going to be treated as an American. They're going to help you figure out what you need to do. And that's what they did. They went there. They went into the embassy. And, and in a sense, they left Costa Rica... They stepped back into the United States and they were able to get a passport and continue on their three-month experience in Europe and the whole thing. Now, why am I telling you that? Because this is the purpose of the temple. The temple essentially is God's presence on earth. It is a touch point to where the God of the universe makes himself known and revealed in space on earth. Because God is God. In fact, the, uh, the Bible says that God is he's everywhere all the time. That you can't escape the presence of God. And yet God designs a building to be the touch point between humanity and heaven. Are you tracking with me? He, he, he creates a building that says this is going to be the location where my presence, even though I'm everywhere all the time, you are actually going to find my presence in a real and tangible way. It's a touch point. And Solomon builds this temple as a permanent structure to house the presence of God. Even though both Solomon and Yahweh know that this building could never hold the entirety of the presence of God. 
Listen to what uh, uh, Solomon would say in the very next chapter, 2 Chronicles 6. He says this, but will God really live on earth among people? Why, even the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. He understands that this building can't hold the presence of God. And yet God promises that through this building being built, this is going to be the touch point between heaven and humanity. That this building is actually going to carry the weight. Even though all of the heavens can't hold it, this building is going to hold the presence of God. And this is going to be the place where heaven and earth intersect. And listen, this was always God's plan. God's plan was always to dwell with and live among his creation. Now we're going to look at this theme throughout the entire Bible, all right? So buckle up, everyone buckle up. Last time I said put your thinking caps on, I still get made fun of this. I said everyone put your thinking caps on. <laughs> so I'm going to get it right this time. Everybody buckle up. I'm just kidding. Everybody buckle up. We're going to go through the whole Bible. Sound good? Yeah. You ready for it? The entire Bible. We're going to look at it uh, in three parts, okay? They all start with the letter P. We're going to talk about the pattern, we're going to talk about permission, and then we're going to talk about presence, okay? You guys are basically entering into Bible college. You're in seminary right now. This is big stuff. You ready? You can handle it. I know you just came from school and you're learning like algebra and Spanish or whatever, um, all that stuff. Now we're going to talk about the temple. And three parts, pattern, permission, presence. Number one, the pattern, okay? Genesis, number one, Eden. This says this, Genesis chapter two, we're going to the beginning, right? We're gonna look at this idea as a pattern throughout the whole Bible. Genesis chapter two, it says this. Then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he placed the man he had made. The Lord God made all sorts of trees grow up from the ground, trees that were beautiful and that produced delicious fruit. In the middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed from the land of Eden, watering the garden and then dividing into four branches. The first branch called Pishon flowed around the entire land of Havilah uh, where gold is found. The gold of that land is exceptionally pure. Um, aromatic resin and onyx stone are also found there. The second branch called the Gihon flowed around the entire land of Cush. The third branch called Tigris flowed east of the land of Assur. The fourth branch is called the Euphrates. And the Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and to watch over it. Okay. The design was for all of humanity to live with God in this garden. This was the design, and this is the way that sort of the garden was set up. I've got this image. Uh, it's kind of hard to see. I apologize. Um, but this is the pattern. So you see that there was a region called Eden, and then God planted a garden in Eden. That's what it says. Um, we often call it the Garden of Eden, but it was a garden in a region called Eden. And then in the center of that garden was the tree of life. And this was where heaven and earth intersected. This is the touch point. This is where God and man would have relationship. And we talked about early on in the series that the whole earth was in Eden. There was a region called Eden, and then God's commission was to create the whole earth as Eden. Go back and listen to that on the podcast. But God and man would have a relationship. Heaven and earth intersected. But this paradise was lost, right? 
The story continues. Unfortunately, it doesn't say like, and everybody lived happily ever after, and there we are, naked and unashamed in Eden. It's not what it says, right? Chapter 3 happens. They rebel. Sin enters the world, and here we are today. And through sin and rebellion, they were removed from the the garden, and that touch point was lost. We're even told that cherubim, angels, at the end of chapter 3, that angels were set outside the region of Eden to guard so that humanity couldn't find their way back in. That this, that this the, the space was closed up. You can almost picture it like a portal. Like the portal was closed up. The touch point between heaven and earth was closed up. And there was angels, cherubim, that were set to guard this access point. Okay? So that's Eden. But remember, God still desires to commune with his people. So secondly, we move from Eden, we move to the tabernacle. Okay, this is Exodus chapter 25. Moses is on Mount Sinai. The people are at the bottom, and God is speaking to Moses. Uh, to Moses it says this, Here is a list of sacred offerings you may accept from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine linen and goat hair for cloth, tanned ramskin, fine goatskin leather. Uh, some translations say instead of goatskin leather, leather, it says porpoise like porpoise skin, which is like, a porpoise is a dolphin. So it's got to be a mistranslation, right? Like, there's no way they're out there finding dolphins and putting that in the tabernacle. So, like, honestly, if you look at this verse and you go through a few different translations, you're like, porpoise. And then it's like, goat skin, and it's like, fine Egyptian leather, some verses. They have no clue. They're just like, I don't know. It's like one of those Hebrew words that has just been lost. They don't really know how to translate it. That's besides the point. It's probably not dolphins. Um, Probably not. Okay, acacia wood, uh, olive oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and the fragrant incense, onyx stones and other gemstones to be set in the ephod and the priest's chest piece. Then verse 8, have the people of Israel build me a holy sanctuary so I can live among them. You must build this tabernacle and its furnishing exactly according to the pattern I will show you. Now notice a couple things. One, a lot of the same materials that are described in the garden are then described as the pieces that are going to be furnishing the tabernacle. Right? God's design is to dwell with humans. So we've got the garden, that's lost, and then God has images. He says this is the pattern, this is a representation of what you're going to see. Also, notice again that God is going to reveal to Moses that it's a pattern. He says, uh, build this tabernacle according to the pattern that I will show you. God is going to show Moses something that's happening in the heavens. He is then going to design the tabernacle to mimic what he sees. Okay, so God's going to show Moses something that's happening in the heavens, and then Moses is going to mimic what he sees. And it will be set in the same way as the garden. Let's go to this next image. So here is the same thing. Instead, we've got the tabernacle as a whole, the tabernacle proper, and then it's divided into sections. You've got the the outer court, um, and then you've got the altar. We'll look at that in a moment. Um, And then you've got the gate of the tabernacle, and then you've got the holy of holies. It's designed in the same thing, and the holy of holies being where God's presence dwells. Go to that next image where we see sort of the tabernacle. So this is, if you see on my uh, left, 
the gate, this is, imagine that's the whole tabernacle. You're walking in. You would see the altar. This is where the sacrifices were made. And then you've got the, uh, the sink where washings would happen. Then you've got the holy place. The holy place would be accessed by the priests. And then you've got the holy of holies or the most holy place, the inner part. And this is where God's presence would show up. This is where the Ark of the Covenant was. This is where God's presence would actually show up. And the only person that could go there was the high priest. And he could only go there one day a year, the Day of Atonement, where he would encounter the Holy of Holies. But again, it's a pattern. You see that ring. You've got the tabernacle. You've got the inner, or the inner part, the holy place, and then the most holy place. And because of sin, only certain people would be able to access certain parts of the tabernacle. All people could enter the tabernacle. Only priests could enter the holy place. And then only the high priest could enter the most holy place. Now, even the scene at Mount Sinai where Moses is standing on top of the mountain would reflect this same circle idea. Would you go back to the other slide? Sorry, Jacob. Thank you. Um, would reflect this same thing. You would have the mountain, Mount Sinai, and at the bottom of the mountain were the people. And then Moses and Aaron would ascend the mountain, be up there with them. And then only Moses would go into the thick cloud of God's presence. So you've got the, the mountain, the presence, and then the real presence, right? And, and only Moses went there. Again, it's setting up a pattern, an example for us to see. Okay, then that brings us to the temple. Number three, we talk about the temple. The temple would follow the exact same pattern as the tabernacle. In fact, that is what the temple was. Throw up that final image of circles. The same thing. You've got the temple, you have the temple courts, and then you have the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, following the exact same pattern. The, the temple was essentially the tabernacle, but permanent. Right? What happened was David, as a king, sitting in his palace, looks out and he sees the Ark of the Covenant underneath a tent. And he goes, this doesn't seem right. This doesn't seem okay that I'm in this massive mansion and that the presence of God is living in a tent. And he's like, I want to build something permanent, something glorious for God to dwell in. And so the temple is a permanent structure for the same idea as the tabernacle. And using the same materials, images, and pattern that God revealed to Moses, Solomon built the temple. Are you tracking with me? Is this making sense? It's pretty interesting, right? We're going somewhere, I promise. The reason is because the presence of God is holy and powerful. And because God's presence is holy and powerful, there are specifications and limitations for how to have access. Uh, did you notice the, the, the cherubim mentioned in the story in 2 Chronicles? Right? He says that the Ark of the Covenant was brought in and that the poles were sticking out and the cherubim covered the Ark of the Covenant. Again, it's Eden imagery. Right? You've got the, the people of Israel or excuse me, the, the humans kicked out of the garden, right? Adam and Eve are out of the garden, and then what does God put? Cherubim to guard the access. Here we have the temple of God. What's guarding the access? These images of cherubim. It's all the same images, but designed to say, God's presence is here, and God's presence is powerful. And because God's presence is powerful, there's actually limitation for when and who can have access to the presence of God. And in fact, every article mentioned in the temple points back to the garden 
and points forward to what God's doing. The golden onyx, the menorah representing the tree of life, the lampstands representing the light of the world. All of the things that are happening in the temple are designed both to point back and to point forward. Okay, that was part one. We've got two more parts, but the other two are way quicker. Good? Part two, permissions. So we just talked about the pattern. Let's talk about permissions. What are the permissions to the presence of God? If it's, if it's powerful and if it's holy but there's limitations, how do you access the presence of God? Uh, because it isn't Eden, right? The tabernacle isn't Eden. But God still wants to have relationship with people. But rebellion, sin, limits the access. And so there's three things that, that create access. I'll say them quick and then I'll break them down. Sacrifice, intercessor, and then worship and faith. I know that's four things, but I put worship and faith as one thing. So you've got sacrifice. The sacrifice would represent cleansing. In fact, uh, sorry, Jake, I'm going to make you do it again. Could you throw up the temple one once again? Okay, so at the altar, this is where the sacrifices would happen. You would walk into the temple, you would walk past or, or into the temple proper, the big structure, it's an outdoor courtyard, and you would get there and there would be an altar set up where there would be sacrifice, animal sacrifice happening all day long, every single day, okay? And, and you would smell that aroma from anywhere you were, right? You're in Jerusalem, anywhere, and you're smelling this sacrifice. And what it reminds you of is that something needed to die in order for you to have access to God and forgiveness of sins. That a cleansing, it, 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 without the shedding of blood, the Bible says, there is no remission for sins. There is no forgiveness of sins. So the altar, the sacrifice, represents cleansing. But then secondly, there needs to be an intercessor. Okay, so the way it would work is you've got the priests and you've got the high priest. The priest would go past the altar into the outer sanctum or to the holy place. And there they had the menorah, they had the wash basins, they had different things that they would all day long, in fact, the same language that's used at the end of Genesis 2 that they're supposed to work and keep the garden is the same words used to describe the peace or the priests and what they're doing in the temple. They're to work and keep the temple, okay? So same images. It's fascinating, right? Um, it's, it's like God had a plan. Imagine that. It's like God wasn't just like spitballing. Anyway, so you've got the priests there, and they're, they're doing their things. And they're representing the people as they go into the holy place. But then again, the, the high priest would go into the most holy place where God's presence actually was as a representation of the priests and the people. So in order to have access to the presence of God, the permission to have access to the presence of God is you needed an intercessor, someone to go on your behalf. A regular person couldn't just waltz into the most holy place. They couldn't just go and see God. Hey, I want to go talk to God today, so I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to get myself to the temple and I'm going to march my little behind right into the most holy place. You can't do that. You can't go there. And so you needed an intercessor. And then finally, in order to have access, there was worship and faith. And this would speak of intimacy. All of it was an act of worship and faith. Worship through giving, right? As you bring your spotless lamb to the temple and you say, okay, this is my sacrifice to God. And I'm believing that as I give this to God, my sins are going to be forgiven and I'm going to have access to God. Okay, so this would happen. And then we've got a huge change in the story. 
The fourth thing, we've talked about Eden, we've talked about the tabernacle, we talked about the temple. Now let's talk about Jesus. Jesus shows up. Listen to what's described, uh, how Jesus is described in John chapter 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now the Word that it's speaking of is Jesus, the Messiah. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. I love that verse. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness was not overcome it. And then listen to this, verse 14. The word, Jesus, or God, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. God became human, and the language there is literally God tabernacled with us. It says the word became flesh and made his dwelling. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. His presence, God's presence, known and available. In fact, he would be our sacrifice for cleansing. He would be our intercessor for access. And through him, we can know the presence of God. What Jesus has done, both symbolically and literally, is tear the veil that would separate the holy place or the outer place and the most holy place from top to bottom, making the presence of God accessible to anyone that would go by faith through Jesus. That the presence of God that was disconnected and distant and and all you could think of was was sin and sacrifice, through the sacrifice of Jesus, we actually have access to the very presence of God. Through faith in Jesus, we become, not only do we have access to the presence of God, but listen, the Apostle Paul takes it a step further. He says, Jesus tabernacled among us, and then he says, you actually become the temple of the living God. So at one point... It was distant. You couldn't get there. All of a sudden, Jesus tabernacles among us. He dwells among us. We see the glory of God full of grace and truth. He lived and he died and he rose again. And now you, the follower of Jesus, become the temple of the living God. And through faith, we become a part of, we become the temple of God and we also become a part of the temple of the living God. We're born into God's family, and God makes us his temple. Okay, final thing. I'm going to land the plane. You guys still with me? Part three, the presence. Now, I want to remind you my main point. God wants to live with and dwell among his creation. He has gone through all of this, right? Starting with Eden and then the rebellion and then the tabernacle and the temple and sending his own son and all of that. He has gone through all of this so that we would experience God's presence in a personal and an intimate way. Made available by the work of Jesus and made actual through the sending of the Holy Spirit. In every scene where the presence of God shows up, it's seen as uh, by a cloud and fire. Moses on the mountain, the filling of the tabernacle, the filling of the temple. And then you have Acts chapter 2. The apostles are in the upper room praying, and God's spirit pours out as a mighty rushing wind in a cloud and tongues of fire. You see God's presence filling the church, filling individuals to experience his personal presence. Listen, this is my point. Again, God wants you to experience his presence 
in a personal and intimate way. Listen to me. God is not an idea. God is not a, a just like a, a thing that we kind of just like contemplate. God is not just like a, a ritual that we follow and we're like, oh yeah, we'll just call it God. God wants you to experience his presence, his reality in a personal and intimate way. And listen to me, you don't need more Bible in your life. You don't need more prayer. You don't need more worship. You don't need more church. You need more God. God's presence is what encounters you. He is who transforms you and comforts you and protects you and satisfies you. Do you know what you need? You need more God in your life. Now, all of those things, Bible, prayer, worship, church, are all vehicles that God uses to get us to him. But the end of the road is always God. Right? The end of the road is not Bible memorization. The end of the road is not like, oh my gosh, I know the worship song without even looking at the screen. Like I, you would never believe this. I prayed for a whole two minutes today, uninterrupted. Wow, that's not the goal. The goal is not, I prayed for a whole two hours today uninterrupted. The goal is to experience more of God's presence in our life. So how do we do that? Three ways we do that to experience God's presence in our life. Number one, take time to be with God. How do you experience God's presence in your life? Well, you need to take time to be with God. And I use all of those words intentionally, to take time, to say, I'm going to set aside a portion of my day, my morning, my afternoon, my evening, whatever it looks like. I'm going to set aside a time to say, this, I'm going to be with God. Now, this is a part of that. Coming to church is a huge part of it, and I, I commend you for being here. Right? Praise God you're here. I'm so we, I love you. I'm so happy you're here. But I also want to encourage you that you need to learn to be with God for you. So that way when you graduate out of youth or you move away or you know, there's some new season of your life, you can go, do you know what? I didn't need all of that because I know, I know what it takes to be with God. I have time carved out in my day. So number one, take time to be with God. Number two, learn to be aware of God. Okay, so it's important that we take time. This is my dedicated time to be with God. It happens at this time or at this part of my day or whenever this is not going on. This is my taking my time. But then also part of life is learning to be aware of God. Where's God in your everyday life? So, okay, I, I see him when I'm opening up my Bible and I've got the worship or like the ambient music going on, like the chill beats to read God's word to. I've got that down. But then where is God in the workplace? Where is God at the dinner table? Where is God on the, on the practice field? Where, where is God in the every single day? Learn to be aware of God. And then finally, live your life for God. How do we experience God's presence? Well, you live your life for God. You say all of my life, not just the parts that I've set aside, not just the parts that I'm actually aware of God, but all of my life as a direction is for God. That doesn't mean every single day is going to be like, oh, God, I did this for you. But rather, my whole life is set out in a trajectory that, God, I'm living for you. And so that allows you to go to work 
and be aware of God's presence in the day-to-day, but then also just know, God, this is all for your glory. Me doing whatever I'm doing. I'm looking at Matt who cuts down trees for a living. God, this is for, for your glory, right? I think of guys that play football. All right, God, this is for your glory. Everything that I'm doing, right? You're graduating high school, right? This is your senior year. You're figuring it out, whatever. God, this is for your glory. My life is in a direction living for God's glory. Can, I, can we put that main point up one more time just so I can read it? We'll close and I'll pray. I'll be done. The very first one. God wants to live with and dwell among his creation. God wants to be a part of your life. God wants to, to live with and dwell among his creation. You're a part of his creation. He wants to be with you. And then part of that, the last thing I'll say is this. I know this is, I already said that, but I've got two minutes technically. Part of the temple and the tabernacle was a obvious sign to the world that God's presence was there. In fact, they would go so far to say, Solomon would, would say it in these next chapters, in chapter 6 as he makes his prayer, but he would say, if anybody is anywhere in the world and they turn towards this temple, they don't even have to be at the temple, if they turn towards this temple and pray, God, would you hear their prayers? That the temple was designed to be a thing to remind everyone God's presence is here. Can I tell you, your life is designed to be a sign to everyone around you, God's presence is here. So how do you live? How do you react? How do you go to work? How do you do your day-to-day as a sign to the world that says God's presence? I am the temple the dwelling place of the living God. He is in me, and I want everybody to know that God's presence is here. That's your life, the temple of the living God.